that, uh, that handout is available. We have a bit of an outline that will let you know a little bit about what we're doing tonight. And I'd like to call your attention to page three uh, before we begin the reflection. I just, I just put together six. It's just six little references <clears throat> in case you want to do some more reading about the Second Vatican Council. And I want to point out three of those six specifically. If you're kind of interested in Vatican II, <clears throat> you'd like to do a little more reading, but you're not a fanatic about it, Gidartes and Clifford's book, the third one there, Keys to the Council, Unlocking the Teachings of Vatican II, is rather easily negotiated. It's, it's, it's written uh, uh, as a bit of a textbook for uh, introduction to Vatican II. If you're a little more serious and you want to read a really good book on Vatican II that just is uh, very uh, excellent and comprehensive, I recommend Father O'Malley's book to you, What Happened at Vatican II. It's just excellent. Uh, he's a Jesuit priest, a theologian out of Georgetown. If you are really serious about Vatican II... <laughs> and you are a bit of a aficionado about Vatican II, uh, Father Cardinal Yves-Marie Congar's book, My Journal of the Council, was just published this last year, 2012, in English. It was published in French in 2006. Uh, Congar was one of the great experts at the Council as a theologian, gave lectures every night to groups of bishops as as they were doing all over Rome, and made the effort to keep a very uh, comprehensive journal about what he heard at the council and what he thought of what he heard. Uh, it's a thousand pages. Uh, tell you more than you'll ever want to know about the council. But it's really very interesting and very candid. Now, on a couple of occasions, he'll say things like, Bishop so-and-so rose to speak this morning. He said the following. The man's a moron. He doesn't know any theology. <laughs> so, it's his journal of the council. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, I recommend those to you. Okay. Very excited about this topic and excited. I'm excited about opening up this topic here at St. Patrick's. And the reason for that is this. In all my travels from Australia to Europe, in all the places that I go, this parish embodies the spirit of Vatican II more fully and more completely than any place I go. And as we open up what happened at Vatican II, you'll make those connections yourself here from your experience of this great faith community. So uh, I'm excited for you to uh, make those theological connections and link it to your own faith community. Quite candidly, some places where I would do this talk, it would be an historical memory. So enjoy, enjoy what you have. little background on the council. There have been in the history of the church 21 councils. That's not very many 
for a 2,000-year-old church. 21 councils. The first uh, eight of those councils were all held in Greek cities, Asia Minor. None of those eight councils were called by a pope. They were all called by lay people, women and men. They happened to be an emperor or an empress, but it was lay people who called those first eight councils. So if you're not happy with what's going on in your church, call a council. <laughs> in fact, the popes didn't attend those first eight councils. The very first council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, was called by the Emperor Constantine, the Emperor of Rome. In fact, I know that you cheat here and use the Apostles' Creed uh, on Sundays, but in many communities, we pray the Nicene Creed, the longer creed. That's Constantine's Creed. came out of the Council of Nicaea. Very important council in the church. The other 13 councils were called by popes, except for Constance, the Council of Constance, and they were held in the West. As I said, the first eight were held in the East, Asia Minor. The other 13 were either held in Italy or in France or in Switzerland. The 13 councils had as their primary language Latin. And the Second Vatican Council was conducted almost exclusively in Latin, but not exclusively. The, the uh, bishops from the Eastern Church certainly were not going to speak Latin. If you know anything about the history of the Catholic Church, they chose to speak French. Very interesting. But uh, Latin continues to be the official language of the church. In fact, I was in, the, I was in theology studies in Seattle during the Second Vatican Council, and I remember, I remember everybody was just astounded that Pope John XXIII issued, he signed it, issued Vetem Sapientiae. And what that was was a declaration that seminaries should still teach their courses in Latin and that the official language of the church is Latin. And we're all saying, what? We're talking about mass and English coming and all kinds of changes coming. But it's the way Rome does things. And it was a kind of a bit of a pay-on to the, to the uh, older cardinals who were really upset that Latin might be uh, just becoming restricted to the scholars and to the official language of the church. Vatican II is distinguished from all the councils that precede it in a number of ways. I've made the statement, I've thought about it a lot, I've also researched it, but I've made this statement, you may disagree with it, it's just fine, uh, the world won't end if we disagree, but I think it's pretty clear that the Second Vatican Council is not only the most important council that ever took place in the history of the church, it's the most important event that has taken place in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and it took place within our lifetime. Five things distinguish this council over all others. Number one, the massive proportions of the council. The massive proportions of the council. 2,000 
860 bishops from around the world participated in the Second Vatican Council. Just to give you a feel for um, how, how massive that is, the council that preceded it, which was Vatican Council I in the 1870s, had only 750 bishops at it. Council of Trent had only 150 bishops. You could get them in a handful of buses. But Vatican II, uh, in the four sessions of the council, had 2,860 bishops participate in it. There were also 480 periti, as they were called, or experts. A peritus is an expert, theological experts that different bishops brought, and some of them were formally uh, experts at the council. That's a large number. There also were 180 invited guests to the Second Vatican Council. And a, a number of them were Protestants or Orthodox, even Russian Orthodox at the day the council opened, showed up. Uh, John XXIII had worked behind the scenes to try to get the Russian Orthodox to come. If you're interested in his history, come tomorrow night. Incredible man. Um, and, and representatives of all the Protestant religions were invited to be present at the Second Vatican Council. That's unprecedented. If you've been, I'm just curious, how many of you have been in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome? Large number, excellent, great, thank you. So you know how big that place is. Um, if you've been in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York on 50th and 5th, and you know how big St. Patrick's is. St. Patrick's fits in the sanctuary of St. Peter's. St. Peter's is absolutely massive. And it was reconstrued to be able to hold all these bishops. Benches built all the way through St. Peter's. What John XXIII did when he invited those Protestants and Orthodox not in union with Rome... He seated them up by the cardinals toward the front. If you were the bishop of East Undershirt, Saskatchewan, you're hanging from the rafters somewhere in the back. John wanted to make sure that these weren't just token guests that came to this ecumenical council. He gave them seats of prominent presence in the council. The scope and variety of issues that Vatican II dealt with is a second thing that distinguished Vatican II. Virtually every other council that was called in the history of the church dealt with a primary issue. It dealt with a problem. It dealt with a crisis. Trent dealt with seminary reform. Uh, Vatican II dealt with primacy of the Pope and dealt with a question of infallibility. It dealt with the papacy. Second Vatican Council dealt with all kinds of issues and was not called in the face of a crisis, more about which in just a few moments. Thirdly, the media interest in the Second Vatican Council was extraordinary and they were welcome. There were 
there was a press office that accommodated the media from all over the world. Those of you who were around during Vatican II may recall, I mean, stuff was in the papers every day uh, and covers of time when significant things took place. I mean, if, if the council were called today with live streaming on the Internet and the social media networks, my goodness, you know, it would be absolutely instant as it was. It was very efficient. People knew all over the world what was going on at the Second Vatican Council. That was unprecedented. No council beforehand ever invited outside worlds. A fourth reason why the Second Vatican Council differs from every other council that preceded it is that this council, more than any other, directly, directly impacted the life of ordinary Catholics. Your life has been significantly impacted by what happened at Vatican II. Unless you were a theologian, what happened at most of the other councils really wasn't an issue for you. You know, dealing with the heresy, Arian heresy, you know, or dealing with any other heresy in the church or a need for reform. You know, unless you were interested in seminary reform, what happened at the Council of Trent wasn't really significant for you. But Vatican II changed the way you are. I remember early on in the seminary, one of my professors said, uh, don't get your hopes up. You will always say Mass in Latin. I wouldn't take a, a tip on the horses from him if you get my drift. Uh, boy, that really, that's just one change. There are many, and we'll look at some of the major changes that have taken place. And I would say to you, uh, I don't think the vernacular was anywhere near the most significant thing that happened at Vatican II. It's a big deal, but it wasn't the most significant thing that happened. You'll be the judge of that, what you think. But that it impacted and affected directly the lives of believers is uncontrovertible. On your outline, um, under number 1B, I just want to take a moment with this because it probably isn't uh, burningly of interest to you, but it's important to get a feel for it if you want to understand what happened at Vatican II. I want to say a word or two about the method of theology. The method, in other words, how is it done? Um, what, what, what was the methodology by which theology was studied at that time and theology was done and done for centuries? Because that has unbelievably huge impact for what happened at Vatican II. The method of theology at the time, and by the way, I'm old enough to have studied under that method in, uh, in the 60s. The method of theology was to study uh, propositions of faith. You know, that Jesus Christ is uh, truly God and truly man. And it would talk about what that hypostatic union was about. It would be propositions of theology. And most of them were written from the perspective of if anyone says contrary to the following, anathema sit in Latin, which is kind of like roughly translated as 
let that person be condemned, is what it means. Anathema sit. Very cold, very clean propositions of theology. There's a book called Denzinger. In fact, uh, just chatting with Father Eric and Father Simon last night, Simon mentioned Denzinger as one of the texts he studied in Rome. Denzinger is the collection of these propositions of theology. And this may be hard for you to appreciate. It's the absolute truth. Very little scripture was involved in the propositions of theology. And in the rare times that scripture was used, it was used not on its own contextual setting. It was used to support the propositions in theology. If this doesn't, I mean, what I'm saying to you is that theology was a pretty, um, very, it was called dogmatic theology. You know, that's, that's a very good description of how theology was approached. It wasn't a narrative it was uh, the propositional teachings of the magisterium of the church. That's how theology was taught. In fact, in fact, I remember one night in the seminary in Seattle studying moral theology. And our textbook was uh, in Latin. It was Tanqueray's Moral Theology. It was volume two. I'm studying for my class. And I remembered thinking, you know, I don't remember seeing the name of Jesus in this book. <laughs> it's a textbook in moral theology. So I systematically went through that book, and I could not find the name of Jesus Christ in the second volume of, of Tanqueray's. You think Tanqueray's only a jinn, he's also a theologian, <laughs> moral theologian. Couldn't find it. And I remember that night, like practicing a three-point shot from the corner of my room to my wastebasket. So I'm done with this. And I pitched that book. I'm done with it. I, I had confidence I could pass the exam anyway. It was like, but to me, that, that's a clean, clear example of what I'm talking about in terms of a method of theology. Because the things we were reading outside of class that were coming out of the council and theologians who were writing, they were writing in a whole new way. We were like literally reading them under the sheets with a, with a flashlight so we wouldn't get caught not reading Latin textbooks. Big change. Well, you see, when John the 23rd announced the council in uh, January 25th, 1959, there were three years of preparation before the council actually opened. And in those three years, John uh, you know, appointed a preparatory commission of cardinals that would prepare documents for the bishops coming from all over the world. Well, those are the cardinals in Rome who prepared those schemata, as they were called, or uh, working papers, I guess we would call them in English. That, uh, the, that the bishops would be asked to study and to address, and pretty much what they expected was rubber stamp them. Well, the, uh, the method I've just described to you, by the way, is called the Roman method of theology. So what the cardinals did was draft heads of the theology departments in the Roman universities 
to help craft these schemata. So the schemata were all written from the method of theology that I described to you. But the experts, the experts that came to the council, the experts that were in service of the bishops of the council were primarily coming from France and Germany. And in France, the experts were all, virtually all folks who from Humani Generis, encyclical in 1950 of Pius XII that condemned modernism, which by the way, generally meant um, any movement toward a scientific model or any movement toward uh, new ways of, for example, studying scripture instead of taking it literally, that was all called modernism and was considered to be a heresy and deeply dangerous modernism. And in fact, up until 1967, every seminary professor had to take a, an oath against modernism. These theologians were generating ideas and approaches to theology that came from what was called in France uh, la nouvelle theologie, the new theology, a new way of going about it, which meant basing scripture on its own terms, going back to the fathers of the church, a narrative theology and moving away from propositions Moving away from a narrative, moving to a narrative. Um, I, I, just to give you the example of moral theology, Bernard Herring, a, a redemptorist uh, moral theologian, wrote a three-volume book called The Law of Christ. It was his new moral theology, and it was gorgeous, is still to this day. And it was all about being in relationship with Christ. And what it means to be in relationship with Christ is to catch the sense of the kingdom of God. And what does a woman, a man, a child of the kingdom do and think? Very different from if so-and-so, that's a mortal sin. If this, that's a mortal sin. You see what I'm saying? It was a new approach in theology. And these theologians had all been condemned and removed from theological faculties in the 50s. Yves-Marie Congar, Jean Delier-Lou, Dominique Chenu, Henri de Lubac, all, all condemned. Henri de Lubac, great Jesuit theologian, was not only forbidden to teach theology, he was not even allowed to live in a scholastic's house. In other words, where the students were, he wouldn't even, wasn't even allowed to live there, and by his condemnation it was so that his pernicious ways would not infect the young. Yves-Marie Congar, great Dominican theologian, was banned to Cambridge, England, where he was considered not to be of any threat or damage at all. Chenu was very deeply under suspicion because he was seen to be the theologian and spiritual director of a movement in France at the time called Worker Priests. This was a group, a small group of priests, maybe 25 guys, who got jobs in factories, got jobs in, on the wharfs, on the docks, 
blue-collar jobs to bring the gospel to the workplace. Rome wasn't amused by that. Well, Shenu was their spiritual director. So as a theologian, he was condemned. By the way, three out of the four of those guys were all made cardinals eventually. This is a great church. This is a great church. Amazing, amazing group. Well, these, these were folks who, who really influenced the fathers of the council because these guys were giving lectures all over Rome in the evenings. That's what the bishops were attending. During the day, they're dealing with these propositions that were written by Roman theologians that said, ah, ah. They dumped them. They dumped the schemata. That's really important to understand when you get a sense of what came out of Vatican II because the 70 schemata that were presented were all dumped by the bishops of the council. So it was a whole new enterprise going on there. Uh, by the way, the German theologians that were the most influential of the council were Karl Rahner. Hans Küng is a Swiss one. He had a great deal of influence, even though he was not officially a paritas. And he's still living, by the way, still writing. It still is not allowed to be a Catholic theologian uh, in, in a faculty, but had a job anyway. And Joseph Ratzinger was a major theologian at the Second Vatican Council, who is now Pope Benedict XVI, and still a very good theologian, by the way. So, boy, that was... Whew, that, that was just a sea change... In, in how theology was done and continues to be done to this day. There were some issues taken off the table at the Second Vatican Council. In other words, uh, issues that the Pope took off the table, four of them. Uh, and John the Twenty-Third took the first one off the table and his successor, Pope Paul the Sixth took the other three things off the table. The first thing that was taken off the table was the reform of the curia. The curia is that is the, is the, is the gathering, I think there's about 30 of them altogether, but um, there are major ones and minor ones. These are the departments in the Vatican that run the church. You know, there's a, there's a department for the clergy, there's a department for the bishops, there's a department for the sacraments, there's a department, there's a uh, uh, a Supreme Court, the Signatura, it's called. It's the Supreme Court of the Catholic Church. That's a, a dicastery or a department. The Curia were the officials who ran those departments. Uh, and every bishop in the planet, then and now, would say the Curia needs to be reformed. John uh, the Twenty-Third said. That's off the table. And really, I, it, my research into the Vatican Council, let alone my experience of living as a believer and a priest through these, these years after the Council, uh, leaves absolutely no doubt in my mind that John was completely correct when he said this is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit. It's astounding how the Holy Spirit worked at the Second Vatican Council. And even though some of the bishops were, uh, you know, not amused that the Pope pulled that off the table, that we can't talk about reforming the Curia, 
John himself said it. If you spend your time on the curia, you're not going to work on the behalf of the, God's people. You know, what's, what's happening within the church. You know, let's put that for another time, another age. You know, let's focus on something else here. Very, very wise. The other three things that were taken off the table by uh, Paul VI, number one was birth control. A number of the bishops from around the world wanted to discuss birth control and, you know, the, to discuss whether or not there should be uh, uh, an updating and a change in the church's teaching based on uh, both physical science and the social sciences, psychology, uh, sociology, anthropology, to say, should we re-examine that question? Paul VI pulled that off the table from the, the Council Fathers and said, I'll appoint a commission to study that, which he did. Uh, he didn't accept the majority opinion of that committee, but he took it off the table from the uh, Council Fathers. Thirdly, celibacy for priests. Paul VI took that off the table. A number of the bishops, especially from Africa and Latin America, wanted to discuss celibacy for priests, looking at a possible change in the church's discipline on that issue, you know, to permit married priests um, because of the needs that they had in their own country and in quite candidly in certain countries, the difficulty that priests were having in being faithful to that. Again, Paul VI took that off the table, said that's not, a, that's not an agenda item for the council. And the fourth one that he took off um, was a huge theological issue. He took off, um, well, let me tell you what the issue was and I'll tell you what the Pope did. One of the things the bishops really wanted to deal with was the theological issue of collegiality among the bishops. That was a very centrally important question to a lot of the bishops and they wanted to have a wider share in the governance of the church that it wouldn't be just the Pope running the church, that there would be a sharing of that authority among the bishops. And it had to do with collegiality. And here's where the big theological argument came. The head of the Curia's uh, office for the uh, uh, Congregation of the Faith was Cardinal Ottaviani, very uh, deeply conservative and powerful cardinal in charge of that office for many years. He was upset that the bishops even thought they had the competence to talk about theology. His belief and the, and the operational functional belief out of Rome was that the bishops of the church got their authority as bishops from central casting, from Rome. In other words, their appointment as a bishop from the authority of the pope is what gave say the Bishop of Phoenix, his authority as a bishop. And what the bishops were saying was, that's not so. That their authority comes from their ordination as bishops. That's a big issue. What it comes down to is this. Is the Pope the Bishop of Phoenix? Is this a branch office of the Vatican? Don't be answering that. Theoretically, that became a very big issue. And um, I, it, it, 
ironically, um, as the bishops voiced that, that they wanted a wider share in the governance of the church because one of the key principles that got articulated out of Vatican II is that the Pope, while acknowledging the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, all the way back to Peter, the Pope is the first among equals. That's a very important theological point. It's a college of bishops that has the responsibility of the magisterium of the church, meaning all the bishops. The Pope has certain uh, responsibilities in the College of Bishops. Not always. Some countries, the Pope didn't appoint the popes, uh, didn't appoint the bishops. In, uh, in Spain, that was a, a civil thing because it was a Catholic country. The head of, head of Spain appointed the bishops. But what, what they were saying here was the Bishop of Rome will always have a certain place of primacy in the church. But he's the first among equals. He's not the Bishop of Phoenix. He has a responsibility to make sure Phoenix has a bishop, not to be the Bishop of Phoenix. Does that make sense to you? Well, you know what, what came out of that? And Paul took that off the table. It, it, it snuck in under Lumen Gentium, the great constitution of the church. But he took it off the table by saying, okay, I hear y'all. Um, we'll have a synod of bishops who will meet from time to time uh, in Rome with the Pope about the governance of the church. And I'll appoint the bishops. And that's what the issue kind of was, was saying, how come we don't appoint the bishops? You know, that we don't elect our own. Anyway, he took it off the table. And it continues. All last October, there was a synod of bishops uh, who met in Rome to help the Pope with the governance of the church. And every one of those bishops was appointed by the Pope. It's an issue. It's an issue. Off the table was not a discussion at the uh, at the council. I want to discipline myself here because I just want to say, as your outline suggests, just a couple of things about John the 23rd because I'm going to talk for real about him tomorrow night, which I'm excited about doing. A um, couple things about John that are salient to understand the council. His whole story is a story of incredible grace. Number one, it was a huge surprise that he was elected. He wasn't from the Curia. He wasn't uh, among the elite of the Roman bishops. He was a peasant from the north of Italy. And he was elected to keep the chair of Peter warm. He was elected... Um, and I'll give you a direct quote on that tomorrow night, but he was elected, they thought, because after the long and very uh, contentious reign of Pius XII, because it went through the Second World War, it was a long papacy, they needed, they thought, a breather. And they just wanted to get a jovial, nice old guy to sit on the throne of Peter, keep it warm till we get a real pope. So it was a surprise that he got elected. Again, more about that tomorrow night. But what was really a surprise was that he called a council. As, I, as you know, there were only 20 of them before his council. And on the third day, third day after he was uh, inaugurated, went through his coronation as the Pope, third day he started talking to his secretary about calling a council. 
in the absence of a crisis, in the absence of any particular issue, John said he wanted to call a council. It was like, what? What and why? And he called the council, as he said, for two reasons. Listen, listen to these reasons. They're extraordinary. Number one, quote, to promote the enlightenment, edification, and joy of the entire Christian people, not just Catholic. And secondly, to extend a renewed, cordial invitation to the faithful of separated communities to participate with us in this quest for unity and grace which so many souls long for in all parts of the world. Get out of Dodge. Are you kidding me? This is astounding. Listen to what he said. A renewed and cordial invitation to the faithful of separated communities. They were always called his schismatics or heretics before John. To come and participate with us, not like return to Rome. Come and be with us. Come and participate with us in this enterprise of grace. Wow, that's why he called the council. Amazing, amazing, amazing. He also made it eminently clear that his council was going to be pastoral in nature, not juridical. Pastoral in nature, not juridical. He said, we want to use the remedy of mercy rather than condemnations. Every single council before John's condemned folks. Anathema sit are probably the two most frequently wor used words in those councils. You know, if anyone disagrees with anathema sit, let that person be condemned. John said, no condemnations at this council. We're here, we're here For the life of the church. It was to help renew the life of the church. By the way, there was one condemnation that came out of the Second Vatican Council, but it was not of a person. The condemnation was for the buildup of nuclear arms, which I don't know anybody who would disagree with that. John was pretty much hands off. Um, he was sick and nobody knew it. He knew it. Um, three weeks before the council opened, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. But he didn't announce that. Nobody knew that except his physicians and his very closest uh, aides, and they were absolutely silent about it. But he was hands-off during the first session of the council. It lasted four. Everybody thought, including John, that the council would just be, you know, a couple of months it opened October 11th, 1962, and everybody thought, you know, you'll be home by first part of December. We'll be done. It took four sessions.
cardinals went up the back steps of the Vatican from time to time to talk to John. He had closed-circuit TV. He'd have the council on with the volume down. Every once in a while when somebody he thought would be interesting was up to talk, he'd turn up the volume. Otherwise, it was pretty hands-off. The other three sessions of the council were under Pope Paul VI, and he was very hands-on with the council. Again, we'll say a little bit more about that tonight, tomorrow night. There are two words that I would say to you are absolutely essential to understand what happened at the Second Vatican Council. One in Italian and one in French. They're on your notes. Aggiornamento. Aggiornamento. The Italian word which means updating or modernizing. Do you remember I mentioned earlier in my reflection with you tonight that a big, big problem in the church was modernism? You know, any notion that scientific method or um, archaeological or historical critical methods for reading the scriptures would be condemned. It's modernism. John chose an Italian word which means modernizing. Aggiornamento means modernizing. Everybody on the Curia was reaching for their beta blockers when they heard him say aggiornamento was one of the reasons of the council to modernize and update the church. You know, by the way, he was suspected of modernism as a young priest because he used a textbook in the seminary where he taught uh, that was on the index of forbidden books. And he was suspected of modernism. When he became pope, John sent over to the holy office for his file. And on his file, because he got a postcard from somebody that had been excommunicated for modernism, on his file was written, suspected of modernism. You know what John did? God bless this man. He wrote on the file, I never was a modernist, and sent it back to the holy office. <laughs> if you were the chicken pope, wouldn't you put it in the shredder? You're a very humble man. You're an incredible man. Journamento, modernize, to update the church. And the second word relates to la nouvelle theologie that I mentioned to you earlier, those French theologians and a couple of the Germans who were very influential. John said, ressourcement, that they had to go back to the sources. The method in theology was going to change here. Ressourcement means go back to the scriptures, go back to the fathers of the church, which is exactly what Vatican II did. And I'll show you about that in just two seconds here. A return to the sources and to the practice of the early church. Let me give you some examples. You know, it's, it's always amazed me, people who were, quote, upset with Vatican II. What did you do to my church? You've heard that, haven't you? What did you do to my church? You're upset with Vatican II. All these newfangled things you brought into Vatican II. Really? Let me tell you some of the things that out of ressourcement are part of our church today. Meaning, going back to the sources, to the early church. 
to the fathers of the church, to the scriptures, particularly in the Acts of the Apostles, and the life of the early church. We have three permanent deacons on the staff here at St. Pat's. The permanent diaconate was not an invention of Vatican II. It restored the permanent diaconate from the earliest days of the church out of the Acts of the Apostles. I've heard people criticize the permanent diaconate saying, oh, modern invention of Vatican II. We need priests. Who needs deacons? The early church decided it needed deacons and had them for a long time. What Vatican II did was to restore the permanent diaconate. And for a thousand years, it had been only a way station on the way to the priesthood. It's, you, I got ordained a deacon in some you know, moldy seminary chapel one quiet morning, and he walked around wearing a stole in a funny direction for a couple of months, and then got ordained a priest. It restored it as a legitimate office in the church for service primarily to the poor as the symbol of the church's commitment to the poor. The restoration of the RCIA. Boy, you talk to any staff members of happily functioning parishes, and they'll tell you one of the most wonderful renewing experiences in the church is the RCIA. I didn't know any of the individuals, 16 individuals, in the RCIA, but I had the great privilege of giving them a blessing on your behalf as they went to study the scripture. And I found myself tearing up a bit, you know, at, at the wonderful renewal. Here are 16 people preparing themselves to join the church and to come into this faith community. And there you all are praying for these folks and their sponsors are there and their sponsors are are, are taking responsibility for catechizing them and for witnessing for them. The RCIA is a leaven for incredible growth in the church. It's not a new program. It's a right of Christian initiation of adults and of children. It wasn't new. It restored how we welcome new members from the early church. Ressourcement. Not new. Back to the sources. Perfecte Caritatis, which was one of the documents, the 16 documents of Vatican II. You know, people saying, Vatican II ruined the nuns. Vatican II took off the veils. You know, took off... Vatican II didn't do any of that. What Perfecte Caritatis, which is the document out of Vatican II for religious, what it did was send them back to their founders and foundresses and told them, recapture, recapture the spirit, the charism of the founder and foundresses. I just finished reading a fresh biography of Molly Rogers, who was one of the co-founders of Marinol and the founders of the Marinol Mission Sisters. Incredible woman. Smith College, 1910. Wow, and recapturing her vision, her charism, her sense of mission. Powerful way to be faithful to who you are in the church. Resource ma. Back to the sources. Back to the discovery. The liturgy. The liturgy. 
The very first document, it was a, the sacred constitution on the liturgy that was promulgated by Vatican II in the second session. The liturgical changes that were introduced by Vatican II were a return to the practice of the early church. The early church didn't say Mass in Latin. They said Mass in whatever the language was in the house churches where people gathered. And not only that, the three words that overwhelmingly, in my opinion, and I'm not a liturgist, I'm a psychologist, but I'm a, I'm a consumer of liturgy. The three words that are overwhelmingly the most resonantly important that came out of that document on the liturgy, full, active, conscious participation in the liturgy for the people of God. Full, active, conscious participation. Early on, as we began this evening, I said to you, from my experience, St. Patrick embodies Vatican II more completely than any place I've ever been. And one of the reasons for that is how you do liturgy here. And it is absolutely full, active, and conscious participation. Agreed? That's not brand new coming out of Vatican II. That was out of the practice of the early church. Resource mom. Back to the sources. Likewise, ecumenism. Ecumenism is that movement of for the restoration of Christian unity. That doesn't mean make everybody Catholic. It means a real and deep and reverent participation of Christians in their traditions and finding common ground there. And interfaith work, of course, would include people who are not Christians. That was, that was the work of the early church. Not brand new. Collegiality. We talked just a little bit about it as it was in reference to the bishops. But collegiality was the practice of the early church. That all those bishops were in union with one another as a college responsible with Peter, first among equals. But not only that, in Vatican II, so gorgeously told the bishops that it's not just about how the bishops are with the Pope. It's how the bishops are with their priests. They're supposed to be collegial. They're not slave traders. And further than that, how the priests are to be with their people. This is not Father Eric's parish. This is the community of faith of St. Patrick. You see what I'm saying? Collegial. You know, the, the use of pastoral councils, the use of administrative councils. All of that wasn't some new invention out of Vatican II. It was returning to how the early church function, functioned. Resourcement. Let me, let me share with you some words that show up in the document. There are 16 documents that were issued by Vatican II. I'll say a word about that in just a moment. But they are very carefully interconnected. They aren't disparate documents. Their theology builds. But listen to these words. After what I told you about method in theology, the Roman method prior to Vatican II, 
Boy, these are not words that would show up in the method theology. Brothers and sisters. Friendship. Cooperation. Collaboration. Partnership. Freedom. Dialogue. Conscience. Pilgrim. Servant. Development. Evolution. Charism. Dignity. Holiness. Collegiality. People of God. Priesthood of all believers. Those are words that permeate Vatican II in the documents. They are gorgeous. You know, there was a, there was a whole, that whole notion of development of doctrine became such an important component of what happened at Vatican II. You know, like there were so many theologians um, and, and curial members, for example, who thought that the deposit of faith was immutable. And John himself, when he opened the council in his incredible opening address, said to them, the faith we have received is one thing. How it is communicated is quite another. The language around which it's, it, it takes place. You know, it's any notion that the church's teaching is the same now as it was in the day of Jesus. Really? Galileo? Usury? Look, let me give you an example from John's own life. When John was a boy and a seminarian, the Pope was Pope Leo XIII. Do you know one of the things Leo XIII taught in one of his encyclicals? It was just articulating what the church had always assumed and taught. And came up at Vatican II. What Leo XIII taught was this. There should be no separation of church and state. There should be no separation of church and state. That was the teaching of the church. And there were a number of fathers at Vatican II that wanted to reiterate that teaching. That's when the American bishops woke up at the Second Vatican. A lot of them struggled with Latin. <laughs> Cardinal Cushing from Boston, who, who was notorious for not knowing any Latin, he said, that's why God made auxiliary bishops. <laughs> but he could raise a million bucks in a night in the 50s, you know, to, for a project. Uh, Cardinal Cushing said to the, you know, to the leaders of the council, he said, I will pay for simultaneous translation equipment at the council. And they said, no. He said, then I will be the representative of silence. <laughs> but those guys all woke up. The American bishops woke up when they wanted to reiterate on the, on the Gaudium et Spes, the church in the modern world, to reiterate that teaching that there should be no separation of church and state. And you can, you know, all the councils that preceded this were European or Asia Minor, right? And in the European history, Spain, France, Italy, Belgium, they were all Catholic countries. Why would you want a separation of church and state? In fact, Leo XIII taught the role of the state is to implement the teaching of the church. Well, the Americans raise their hand and say, whoa, 
Hang on, this works pretty well for us when we don't do that. What I'm saying to you is, you know, there is a development of doctrine. There is certain doctrine that doesn't change. Jesus is the Christ, the Eucharist, the nature of the church. But there are lots of things that the church has taught that it no longer teaches. And some of the things that the church does teach that it didn't used to teach. And that's, that's because of the development of peoples, human beings. I want to say uh, another word before I say something about the documents, and then I want to talk to you about the revolution, and I want to leave some time for any of your comments or questions. There's 16 documents that were issued, promulgated uh, through the council, four constitutions. Those are the huges. Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, and the Constitution on Divine Revelation. The constitutions are the major documents of the church. Apply to everybody. The decrees, there were nine decrees. They're listed there in your notes. And there were four declarations. In all of my research, I couldn't find anyone who could distinguish articulately the difference between decrees and declarations. Who cares? Constitutions, absolutely so. Here's a key point, and I, I really applaud Father O'Malley, whose book I pointed out to you on your references, uh, that he makes this point strongly in his book. There were no winners and losers at the council. And he never uses the words conservative or liberal in regard to the council fathers. And I think really wisely so. Even though there were some very traditional bishops and cardinals, and there were some folks who were thinking in new uh, ways. And they conflicted. There were lots of arguments. There were lots of, uh, um, there was lots of political machination going on behind the scenes. Lots of disagreements. Around Mary, for example. Um, you know, there, there was a, a large percentage of the bishops that wanted to issue a separate document on Mary. Even wanted to define a new teaching on Mary. There were a whole other group of bishops that wanted to talk about Mary in the theology of the church. 51% wanted to do it in the Constitution on the church. 49% wanted to do a separate document. That's a big difference. But you know what's incredible? When you, when you look in the research, and you could find it in O'Malley's, but other places as well. When you look at when these documents came up, um, after revision and revision and revision to be voted on, they were voted on with numbers like 2,300 to 4 approved. I think the biggest differentiation was like, you know, 2,000 something to 150. But most of them were like to 4 or to 9. You know, like, like when, when they issued the documents, these were documents of the church. And that's, that's, so he refers to them not by conservative and liberal. He talks about minority and majority and makes the point there were no losers, there were no winners. This was a work of the church at Vatican II. On your uh, page two, there's a, there's a list of eight statements. And I, I just drew these out as examples of the revolutionary nature of Vatican II. 
how profoundly um, uh, our experience of the church is changed by what was done at Vatican II. The first statement, that the church is first and foremost a sacrament of Christ's mercy in the world. Right out of Lumen Gentium. This is amazing. The church had never in 2,000 years called itself a sacrament before. The church in Vatican II referred to itself as a sacrament. And we all remember that from our childhood, right? A living sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Isn't that how you learned it? A sacrament. That the church is a sacrament. Wow! That's one of the reasons. It's not just mismanners. That every Mass you come to, the presider of the Mass here at St. Patrick's goes out of his way to welcome visitors. You notice that? And how well you all do that? to acknowledge people who are here, welcome visitors, that the church has to be experienced as a sacrament of mercy, not some bastion of rules, that the church is a sacrament of Christ's mercy, that we ought to be really good at forgiveness, giving and receiving, and that everybody's a giver and everybody's a receiver, without exception, that the church is a sacrament of Christ's mercy. Wow! Does that ever humble us up? Isn't that gorgeous? I love that. I, I, I love that uh, about our church. I always remember a phrase my youngest sister gave me when I was lost in Boston and trying to get us out of the city. And she said to me, Ray, just let me know when you're through being wrong. <laughs> and I'll get us out of the city. And I think of that lots of times at the penitential rite. You know, I... I Privately, you know, we say, let's take a moment of silence to prepare. I always say, Lord, let me know what I ought to be through being wrong about. That it's about, about being a sacrament of forgiveness instead of judgment, and condemnation, dismissal. If you're, you know, you're a heretic, you're going to hell. You're on a banana peel. You're going right to hell. That's not what the church is about. It's a sacrament of Christ's mercy in the world. The church is the whole people of God. There are lots of us who would say that's probably the most significant thing that came out of Vatican II. The, the teaching that the church is the whole people of God. What that did was elevate baptism as the most important thing we could say about one another. Baptism. That we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And isn't anybody better than anybody else. We are all one in Christ, as Paul described yesterday. Remember after I was ordained a priest and we had a family party, and uh, after everybody left, uh, my sisters told me, Ray, you're on washing dishes. And I was teasing them, but I said to them, you want these anointed hands in that dishwater? They said, that's exactly where we want those hands. A whole people of God. Baptism is the key thing that distinguishes us as, as uh, representatives of Christ in the world to witness to the good news of God. You know, prior to Vatican II, and there are a lot of folks trying to reinstate this, boy, there was a hierarchy and a pecking order, right? Who's a little holier than somebody else, right? 
You know, the, the nuns, the holy nuns, you know, maybe priests, maybe not, if you got to know us, not so much. But you know, it was like, I remember an old guy I anointed in a hospital in Eugene as a young priest, old Italian guy, scared the heck out of him. After I calmed him down, I anointed him and prayed with him. And when I was getting ready to leave, he said, hey, Father, he says, you got to pray for me. I said, I will do that. At morning prayer, I will pray for you. He said, thank you. I'm counting on that. I said, it's a deal. Then I said, you pray for me too, huh? He says, hell, i got to pray for you. What chance do I have? <laughs> and that's what he was talking about. You know, that he saw me as higher up on the ladder. This was going against 1,700 years of clericalism to say that the church is the whole people of God. Prior to Vatican II, any time in a document of the Catholic Church that the word ecclesia, the Latin word for church, was used, it meant the bishops. The church teaches. The church says. It is the will of the church. That meant the bishops. By the way, there are those who say that language is back again. But Vatican II is the teaching of the church. The whole people of God. The whole people of God. Fantastic. Gorgeous. That the whole people of God is called to participate in the mission of Christ as priest, prophet, and king. Sorry for the exclusive language. It's the language of the council. That the, that, you know what? This is unbelievably revolutionary. You know what this is saying? That our baptism which we always have known deputes us to worship. You should be baptized to come to the sacraments. What Vatican II was teaching is our baptism also deputes us to ministry. That ministry does not belong to the ordained. Ministry belongs to the baptized. There are certain ministries that the ordained in our church serve for us. But the way that the church had functioned for many, many years was ministry belongs to the bishops. The priests and deacons are ordained to help the bishop. And the people are helping the priests and deacons. Vatican II said, that ain't true. That ain't true. Ministry comes from our baptism. From our baptism. I love that. 104 ministries in St. Patrick's Parish. I didn't count them, Father Eric told me. <laughs> but I know your bulletin is like a small book. You know what that's saying? Vatican II works. This isn't, this isn't helping Bishop Olmsted or Father Eric. This is the people of God exercising their baptismal right and responsibility to do ministry in the church. That's revolutionary and incredible. And I'd never let that go in a million years. You know, a lot of times as a Hertz rent a priest, I go into a parish, you know, a pastor's sick or something to help out. You know, sometimes people pop in the sacristy and say, I'm your reader tonight, Father. You know, I always wanted to say, gosh, I have a Ph.D. I can read. <laughs> but I always do say, ah, you're our lector tonight. That's your baptismal ministry for this people of God in this gathering. That's your ministry, our catechists, our teachers. That's our musicians. Those are ministries that serve the people of God. Vatican II. Four, that the mission of the people of God includes diakonia. That's the word from which, the Greek word from which we get deacon, by the way, means service. 
to human needs in the social, political, and economic orders, as well as the preaching of the word and the celebration of sacraments. Wow. Do you know what that one means? We got to get involved in politics, in economics, in unjust structures. We have the church's responsibility is to change social orders that oppress people, is to speak up when uh, uh, when the, the basic gospel is offensive to people, you know, is discarding people, throwing people away. Rather, you know, like, do you remember in 1980 when the American bishops published that great pastoral on the economy, which talked about the rights of the poor? This isn't charity. There are rights of people to be fed and to be sheltered and to be housed and to be treated equally in all circumstances. You know, uh, Bishop Weekland, Archbishop Weekland out of Milwaukee, was the primary author and the promulgator of that document to the press. His own congressional constituency from Wisconsin said to him, Archbishop, go home and say your prayers. Leave the economy to us. It's not your business. And the archbishop said, it is precisely the business of the church how justice takes place. Vatican II gave us that. As the mission of the church, not just preaching the gospel, not just worship, well, always will be those two things. But it also includes social justice, teaching of the church. The church is realized and expressed at the local as well as at the universal level. I already gave you the theological principle about that earlier. It's collegiality. What that, what that meant is that you are, and this is one of the unique things about being a Roman Catholic. I love it. We're not congregationalists. You're not congregationalists. You belong to a universal church. You, your home, you, you know, the, the priest I work with in Salem, when he welcomes any visitors, he said, welcome to your home away from home, to your Catholic home away from home. You belong to a universal church. If you're in union with the bishops, in union with the Pope of Rome, this is your home. We're, we belong to a, a worldwide universal church. You know, the, at the Mass... I don't know if you notice it, but you know when the priest breaks the host at the fraction right and breaks off just a little tiny piece and puts it in the chalice? That's the symbol you're looking at here. That's a symbol. Uh, the reason the priest does that is to symbolize that this community at this Mass is in union with the Pope. We're in union with the Bishop of Rome. We're a universal church. That's what that little sign means, and it's really important. Most people don't have a clue what that means, or even that the priest does it. I'm conscious of it every time I do it. We are also not universalists. The Pope is not your bishop. You belong to a particular church. You belong to the Church of Phoenix. Church in its entirety would be here if it disappeared everywhere else in the world. You have a bishop. You have all the ministries of the church taking place here. It's one of the gorgeous things about being a Catholic. We belong to a particular church and we belong to a universal church. That's what it was saying. The church is realized and expressed at the local as well as the universal level. Very important theological principle. The church embraces more than the Roman Catholic church. My Irish Catholic daddy just rolled over in his grave. God bless him. Many of you grew up. Boy, if you stepped into a Protestant church, you had serious moral trouble. Remember that? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I just caused a coronary in the front row here. Now, yeah, Vatican II saying the church is wider than the Roman Catholic Church. And that great document on religious liberty also says, and religious truth is to be found in non-Christian religions as well. Shouldn't be a big shock. Jesus wasn't a Catholic. Jesus wasn't even a Christian. But Francis wasn't a Franciscan either. Beautiful, gorgeous. All authority in the church is to be exercised as a ministry of service and in a collegial mode. Well, we're still working on that one, aren't we? <laughs> but I love that principle. All authority is a ministry of loving service. as Modeled after our Jesus who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. That authority is not to be used to lord it over people, to dominate people, to uh, reduce people's dignity in any way. All authority is to be used in a collegial mode and as a ministry of loving service. And finally, and I love this, that the church is in service of the kingdom of God. The church is in service of the kingdom of God. You know why that's so profound? Many of you will recognize this language. Do you remember this language? The church militant, the church triumphant, the church suffering. Do you remember that? That was an attitude. That was a spirituality that was a very arrogant spirituality. You know, it was as much as saying, you want to know what God thinks? Ask the church. Ask the church. What Vatican II did, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is to say that the church is in service of the coming of the reign of God, the basileia tutheiu, the rule of God. The church is in service of the coming of God's reign. If A, a, a brilliant bishop uh, one time said, you know, if you think you're the reign of God, how do you reform yourself? The church always has to be... I, one of the... You know, in many ways... Uh, you know, the great prayer of Simeon from Luke's Gospel, it's prayed in the evening prayer, the compline of the church every day. Nunc dimittis, Simeon says, because you know, he sees the Messiah as a baby there being welcomed into their Jewish religion. And he says, now, Lord, you may dismiss your servant like he's lived to see the Messiah. Uh, I, I almost feel like that, you know, like that if I'd have died after 2000, you know, I'd have missed a lot of Yankee games, but, you know, I'd have been good with some stuff, too. And, you know, one of the things I felt that was a nunc dimittis moment for me when John Paul II got up and apologized through the millennia for any way that the church has been an obstacle to anybody else to finding their way to God, asking forgiveness through the centuries for any way that the Catholic Church has been offensive. I loved that moment. It, was, it embodied this principle that the church is in service of the coming of God's, God's reign. It's not God's reign. That's Vatican II in, a, in, a, in an hour and a half.